Yes, it's been a long time, but you know I can remember some things that we used to do. do, do. To Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. For this week's exchange, we return to About Blank in Berlin for another edition of the Amplified Kitchen, a series of talks tackling crucial issues in club culture. Titled Safe Rave, a how-to. The discussion highlights the barriers to better implementing drug education and testing, with a particular focus on the Berlin scene. Moderated by Deidre Brunan, with panelists Manuela Schultz, Dr. Henrik Jungabella, and Jonathan Gregory, we hear a set of strategies for better managing drug use in party contexts, with ideas pitched to promoters, politicians, and ravers alike. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange on safe raving is up next. Welcome to About Blank and the Amplified Kitchen, which is an event sponsored by Music Board Berlin. And my name is Deirdre Ruan. Um, I'm a writer and researcher about festival and drug safety and nightlife safety in general. We're holding a panel on the rather provocatively titled Safe Rave, where I think you're supposed to infer a question mark as one of the organizers was saying, because it's not really possible to have a completely safe rave, but we want to think about ways we can make it safer, at least in the sort of turbulent situation that we currently have in relation to drugs and drug policy. So there are three interesting speakers here tonight. So I'd first of all like each of you to tell me a bit about yourself and what your relation to this whole scene and this whole issue is. So maybe starting with Manuela. Um, yeah, my name, my, my full name is Manuela Schultz. Um, and I work with both Chill Out, uh, which is an association from Potsdam and Eclipse uh, from Berlin, which is uh, known for running the intervention in Fusion Festival, for example. And so what I've been doing for about six or seven years now is um, 
harm reduction work related to party and nightlife settings. So I'm um, a volunteer and a peer worker. When we run interventions in larger festivals, we mostly collaborate with a lot of um, harm reduction organizations from Germany. And so it's been running uh, under the rooftop of uh, Sonic's PsyCare. So what we offer is a service to provide um, information and harm reduction material to party guests and people that are interested in uh, drug users. And we also provide uh, support for people that are having a more difficult time in a festival or just need a place to uh, hang out and relax before it gets too difficult for them. Thank you very much. That sounds great. And Jonathan? Yeah, hello everybody. My name is um, Jonathan Gregory and I'm a social worker at a, um, at a project called Mancheck. And first and foremost, we are um, at clubs and in bars to talk about sexual health and um, issues regarding sexual health um, for gay men. So it's like HIV and STI prevention, what's your safer sex strategy, um, how do you... Um, how do you how do you prevent um, sexual issue uh, sexual health issues? And um, the other part of my work is that we also um, hand out um, harm reduction information um, regarding all the substances uh, that are used at clubs um, and while partying, as well as handing out um, safer drug use kits. For example, um, straws when you um, have like a take uh, substances through the nose or syringes and needles and dosage helps for G, for example. And we try to talk with uh, people, especially gay men, since we're a gay project, um, about these issues. And um, the government of Berlin, the Senate, um, pays us. So that's also why we're, our work is also always uh, political, because we always try to uh, stay in um, an open discussion with the Berlin politics regarding um, substance use and um, safer raving. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I'm glad to have that perspective because it's a hobby horse of mine that the association between drug harm reduction and sex-based harm reduction goes back a really long way, like to sex worker activists who were heroin addicts in the 1980s. So that's an interesting connection to explore. And also your mention of policy and how it relates to Berlin policy. We'll come back to that later. But finally, how about you? So first of all, I'm not Andrea Zeug, uh, which you would have expected. Um, she's my partner, but she's heading for hospital right now. And since we are both uh, dealing with drugs, yeah, um, I can substitute her tonight. I'm a drug education uh, practitioner and uh, drug scientist, could call. I have published several books on on topics like prevention in the field of school, but also um, we have a group in our new organization that is um, heading for more newer concepts uh, in, in festival work. So, um, and in my science career, so that's one part of my personality, I've been looking very much at how do people stay healthy when taking drugs? Um, what's the they, they call it in science, they call it salutogenesis. So not what's making people uh, sick or bad in the long term, but what's making people more healthy in the long term. 
That's what interests me. Great. And uh, sorry, can you just say your name for the recording? Henrik Jungarbele. That's my uh, that's my name. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, just a sort of general question to start off. Um, I'd like to hear a bit about sort of the current role of drugs and alcohol in like the Berlin scene, but also more widely. Like, how do you think it compares to elsewhere? And are there any sort of recent trends that you've seen? Like, how do you think it's changed? Um, I just met a, a friend, Felix Betzler, who has uh, uh, done a study about club, uh, a survey in, in the club scene of Berlin. And I just wondered if there was anything surprising for you guys uh, in the study when it comes to the drugs that have been used. Well, um, we see a lot of, uh, about half of the people that have answered the, the surveys, uh, half of the nightlife people uh, seem to be using stimulants. So it's it's MDMA a lot more amphetamines and stimulants and cocaine of course, ketamine is uh, is running with about thirty percent of the people who have answered that survey, alcohol is up to eighty percent, cannabis sixty uh, percent of the people, and when I when I listen to what what the colleagues write, uh, they say that a lot of people are most concerned about mix mixed uses, mixed uses of these drugs. What do you see? Honestly, um, I feel like I need to mention one thing before getting this conversation started. Like I've been thinking about it during the day already when I knew I would be on this panel today. And now that I've spoken to um, some friends uh, before the conversation, I found out I might just um, say one word because in fact, um, one of our fellow peer workers from the Sonics Psyche Network and a friend of us has just died like 12 days ago. And due to a lethal combination of prescription drugs, I don't want like... But not in the nightlife setting, so but... Well, but in a recreational setting, oh. so... Yeah, I just felt like I needed to uh, say a word to this because it's still affecting me when I'm um, talking about psychedelic care and harm reduction work. But this is not supposed to like uh, direct the topic of the conversation. So, but it's been shown once more that the fucked up shit just happens, and that also people can do wrong about um, drugs. So. Yep. And that the legal status of drug doesn't necessarily say anything that about it's the safer, risks. Yeah. yeah, and prescription drugs often get forgotten when these things are being considered, So, and even their interactions with recreational ones. So thank you for bringing that in. With that in mind, did you have any more comments? And what do you think, what, what do you think are the current trends? What are people doing more of, less of? Are there particular risks yeah. that people are taking, do you think? Um, so it also leads me to uh, one more thing that I have noticed during the season um, in similar, uh, in, in different festivals, which is that people from my perception really uh, are dealing more with um, actual medication, like with prescription drugs. I didn't notice that as much as I did this summer before. And it's also dangerous because um, um, drugs like benzodiazepines, for example, uh, can cause an addiction quite um, fast compared to other substances. Yeah, so it's one thing I've noticed. Maybe you want to 
join in with something else? Um, yeah, well, first of all, I just wanted to say that we live in an amazing city. Berlin is like the best city in the world. And I think it's great well. that in our scene and in our club scene that we have like this hedonistic standard that every person can be themselves. You can be queer, you can be a, a person of color, you can be anything you want. You can be on Saturday this person, on Sunday this person. And it's amazing that we um, got in this, uh, that we have conversations about substance use. And I um, really want to say substance use and not substance abuse because many people I know are very aware of what they're doing and uh, what they are um, consuming. And they are very aware how to um, be safe, how to have a great uh, weekend, how to have a great party that goes on for three days and they know to drink enough and they know to uh, when to chill and they know when to um, take some more. And I think it's great because in the scenes that I work in, I uh, talk to people about their uh, use of um, substances and enhancements to have a greater party. And a lot of them are very self-aware and um, that leads me to believe that the conversation that we're having, especially in Berlin, in regards to other German cities I know, the party scene of, um, we are very um, open-minded and very um, accepting um, in certain circles when it comes to um, a positive um, party, positive sex, positive view on um, the use of um, substances. For example, in um, the south of Germany, I think that in uh, Munich, for example, or Stuttgart, by any chance if every, anyone knows these cities, um, I mean, they all do drugs. Everyone does drugs at a certain uh, point in their lives. They are all uh, partying and try finding themselves in the nightlife, but they don't talk about it. And that's what's so great. When I moved to Berlin, I pretty uh, soon learned that the people really talk about um, their... Um, substance intake, which I found quite, quite refreshing because it allowed an um, ongoing discussion. Oh. Wow. Turn it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been amplified too. <laughs> maybe, Turn up the volume in the Maybe kitchen. one Great. thing, one thing I, I'd, I'd add a little bit to, 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 to that discussion. Uh, it's the age of party people and related to dosages of drugs that are uh, being dealt right now. All over Europe, we find that uh, the, um, the um, dosage of the MDMA uh, pills that are treated is going up. And that might, might be still going up. So um, when, I first, when I first read my first things or talked to people in the 90s who took uh, MDMA, it was the a standard dose was still 100, 120, 140. Of course, people could double, triple, and so on. But now we, we've got a lot of pills that have 380 or, or 400. And that might be related to, uh, to the age of users and the times they have consumed in their life, too. And that might be a topic, too. So people aging, uh, when it comes to MDMA, don't have the same experience. Uh, um, that's why, by the way, that's an interesting question. Uh, how many times uh, uh, are good MDMA times and how many times are people running after their first MDMA high? Again, doubling doses, tripling doses. That's certainly a topic in the city, too. So do you think that the fact that dosages are going up or pills are getting stronger might be because there's an aging user base that need more in order to 
get it high. adds it adds to that I I, um, I see a lot of very intelligent marketing market oriented people in drug laboratories when you talk to them they are talking to people who buy their stuff so and of course that's <laughs> bad news for new, for young people who are coming to it fresh and don't need an extra large dose and are th- taking these old people pills and maybe running into trouble. Old people pills, that's a nice <laughs> term. <laughs> do you um, actually think or do you know that people are taking higher dosages um, on purpose or is it just, well, what we know from the statistics is that the dosages in the pills are increasing, but do people um, intend to have higher dosages? Probably a lot don't. A lot yeah. don't. It's just a, a general market market effect. And then when when through the black market system, when people start dealing the the substances, the of course the intention of the of the person who who made that uh, pill uh, is not present anymore. So young people might be buying it. They might be handing it over to somebody else. And you can't trust the dosages on the on the mm. pills, so it happens <laughs> that they take higher dosages. Yeah, I think this goes back to what Jonathan was saying about um, it being important to talk about it. Just uh, there's a UK campaign called Crush Dab Weight, which is one of the harm reduction things that they've tried to get shared around. Definitely. The first thing I'm always uh, telling people is that if you take something, talk with your friends about it. Because like you, you can have a great party, but the better party is if you have it with your friends. So communicate what you're taking, what you're doing, um, and talk about it. Because that's all what I'm trying to put into the scene when I talk to people. And when I talk to the um, people of the government, our project always says it's so important to bring back uh, drug checking so that people know what they are taking so that it lowers the risk of an overdose or that you don't know what you're taking. So it's very important that the politics in Berlin jump on the train and say, okay, listen, we know people are using drugs and they won't stop. And you can put all the labels on it that it's bad for whatever, but they won't stop. So let's just find a consents where we can um, work together in um, getting the um, pills checked and that it gets more legal and accepted that people are doing drugs because when we're talking about substance I always feel like it's so easy to say someone abuses instead of uses and it turns very negative very quickly. This is, yeah, I'm really glad you brought up drug checking because You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that I think we wanted to do tonight was to talk about how legal frameworks and drug policy in different places affect this whole process of trying to use drugs responsibly and trying to have as much information as we can about it. And drug checking facilities are kind of one of the biggest flashpoints of that, where you really see the effect of the legal framework. Like, in my work, I was working with volunteer harm reduction projects at festivals in the UK, the US and Portugal. And as you probably know, in Portugal, drug checking is totally okay because possession of small amounts is decriminalized. So in fact, it's endorsed by the government and you can get your drugs checked, no problem, at festivals. In the UK, it's in a really legal gray area, though it's starting to happen. And in the US, if there's any hint that it's happened at your event, the whole event can get shut down and the people who run the event can get prosecuted. And also you can't talk about it because there's so much undercover policing. But um, So what I really wanted to know 
is if one of you can tell me what are the legal affordances of doing drug checking in Berlin and in Germany as a whole. Like, is it possible? Um, can you be honest that that's what you're doing? How much of it goes on? Does anybody know? So we're in a tiny, tiny spot, uh, the tiny city of Berlin, uh, in, if you compare it to, to, to Germany, where one government now decided to, to get it going against the, the federal law or at least the practice uh, how the law has been interpreted. Mm -hmm. So from what I know, um, next year it will, be, it will hopefully be coming up. So the lawyers are still having their fights how to get it really in the club scene. And I think that is a great example. I'm, I'm very much pro-drug checking. Although, if you look at the countries like Switzerland or Portugal or uh, Czechoslovakia where it is done, it's never done all over uh, the place. It's only like little, um, a, a tiny section of the drug-using population that will have access to drug checking or does want access to drug checking even. I think the, the, the function of drug checking is something different. It, it, it tells you that, uh, okay, uh, take care of your drugs. Um, everybody, they, they, it's more a, a general discourse that you could check it and that it's important to know what you're taking. But I think we are on a path to a more relaxed, uh, way of uh, talking about drug checking in Germany. There's actually a pilot project in drug checking uh, which has just started a couple of months ago in the middle of Germany, in Thüringen. <laughs> um, so we're going to find out uh, about how's it going and what they're experiencing um, quite soon, I guess. Awesome. Are they based in clubs or do they go to festivals or both? Do you know? As far as I know, there's um, like a place where people can go like twice a week and give their samples and then they will return to get their results or kind of that. Oh, so it's permanent. It's open permanently rather than just at events. Is that right? Um, so as far as I know, they are not operating at events, but um, they have certain opening times like on two or three days a week where people can go uh, apart from parties and get their drugs tested. So while formal drug checking is not possible in many places in Germany, there's a little trick that people can use. So if you're sending an unknown substance which has found the way to you, somehow, uh, somehow to a toxicology laboratory at a university, and you never call it drug checking, uh, the probability that they uh, will do it is high. So you just don't call it drug checking because you're not allowed to do drug checking. Yeah, so once again, we have that thing where talking is vital, but often you can't talk for legal reasons or you can't be perfectly honest about what you're doing. But it's great to hear these things are happening anyway. I also found interesting uh, what you said, that drug checking is uh, an effective tool, but still it's only a kind of a service where a small amount of people will have access to. And I still think the general perception, it also refers to what, uh, what Jonathan said, the general perception of drug use um, 
also on a social level is uh, quite important. For example, in past years we've come across a lot of um, party organizers or um, clubs that didn't really allow like information material to be um, displayed because they were afraid only then the police or like uh, the authorities will um, pay attention to their club and find out that people do might take drugs in there. Um, and so this has been an issue. I feel like in the last two or three years, it's kind of changing, especially in the Sonics um, Psyche network. We are receiving a lot of requests uh, from different um, events and smaller festivals that actually are looking for support and for that kind of psychare and information services. So it's a positive trend, but I couldn't tell where it's coming from. It'd be interesting to know whether it's how much of it is politics changing, the political climate changing, and how much is them just getting more confident or being more willing to stick their necks out, but I'm glad it's happening. I mean, at the same time, relating to, to what we said before, when, when it comes to drugs in clubs, I think the, the legal situation is kind of crazy. Um, what, we, we need a shift in, in the legal way that people are, that drug, you, uh, drug owners need to take care of, of the environments. I mean, why don't we have a law, maybe in a new psychoactive substances law, where uh, a club owner uh, is obliged to uh, give drug information is obliged to so so that all the arguments that are now present in the public sphere so we don't want to give drug education because people think then think that drugs are in our club so these crazy arguments everybody knows it but they are still hiding so um, we could set rules um, everybody has to put up a, a little sign uh, people under 16 don't don't uh, don't get beer in here or something like that. Even if it's followed or not, they need to do it. Otherwise, they can start a club. Uh, why don't we make them put out information material and those uh, access routes to people like you? So what you're proposing is almost like the opposite of what they have in American drug policy, uh, like that situation where if a club owner is seen to have any awareness or do any harm reduction, like giving out free water, they can get in deep trouble. That's a Joe Biden uh, law. Yeah, yeah. Obama's buddy who brought up that law in the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. I heard he was kind of conned into it or he was, it was kind of slid in under his radar and he didn't even really read it. It was on the coattails of some other bill, but anyway, we have it now. Or they do, so. So... I've heard a bit about policy, heard a bit about some trends that might be a bit worrying. Um, could you talk more about sort of solutions or like harm reduction things that you've seen happening in Berlin or elsewhere that you think have been working well, that you think have got good results? And why do you think they've been working? I'm just having a quick thought uh, because I just returned from the last uh, festival interventions and what we experience every time is that uh, guests are coming to us uh, being so thankful and 
uh, sometimes they even want to uh, volunteer as well or especially they show their deepest appreciation and so I always tell them that they should uh, address the the organizers uh, of the festival or the club owners to also encourage that they know okay they're spending money on in, uh, inviting um, side care services and they might also be afraid of the authorities or something and so I think it's important uh, to give feedback as well and show that uh, you as a party guest um, appreciate that the club owner is providing that kind of um, special services. Yeah, that's great because often organizers are kind of in a vacuum and a bit scared, so showing the people appreciate it is great. Yeah, I think um, people who go out and have a party, uh, where do you have the party? You have the party at the club. So I think they have a huge responsibility to provide um, information and um, a place where people can chill out and um, have water or fruits or um, anything they need to, to get back on their feet. So what we're doing at Mancheck is that we are working with different clubs and providing them um, a training that uh, that's called Safer Clubbing, where they can uh, learn in a two um, in two days, I think four hours per day, uh, how to uh, prepare their club and prepare the party so that it's a safer rave, so that the, that the guests can have a, a nice party and that the people and the staff who work at the club are aware that people are doing substances at the party and that it's not like a top, off topic. So it's not like it shouldn't be discussed, it needs to be discussed, and it needs to be discussed on a regular basis. So that's what's, what's we're, what we are advocating and also doing uh, with certain club owners, and I found that to be very uh, healthy and a very good um, basis for the, um, for the people who work at the club, at the door, at the bars, as well as the um, people who throw the parties, that they are making an environment where um, it's safe, as uh, safe as possible, to, um, to uh, be high and have fun. I mean, then again, we, we could look at the whole uh, question from a more behavioral uh, um, perspective or from a more structural perspective. Why don't we have um, uh, a law from looking from a structural environmental perspective where a part of every ticket needs to be um, 3% needs to be spent on uh, drug education stuff yeah so because the systemic things um, they will not they cannot be uh, solved with uh, behavioral programs behavioral programs only reach a tiny part of the population so I think in talking more freely about drugs in accepting that drug use is a a way that a part of methods that people use to to um, to uh, engage into ecstasy, engage in altered states of consciousness, that that is a normal human behavior. But a part of that is also changing the discourse to um, we need structures that finance good work that is uh, has that is done in uh, drug um, um, education facilities, like the ones you are working at. And I think that the private sector, the club owners with their ticketing could be uh, a part of that financing uh, system. It would solve a lot of problems. 
Yeah, but I think um, how long does it take for a law to um, to get like settled in, to get um, signed and anything? Like it took like uh, over half a year so that Germany had a, had a new government. Like I don't think we're in times right now where it's like a fast process. But I do think that especially in Berlin, we have a club scene that is very tight knit, so that people can self organize uh, to get things done ahead of the uh, lawmakers because uh, they are not um, that good at the moment. <laughs> yeah, there's, in, in, there's also another thing, if we look at the behavioral side, I think we have very few models in the public space or in the club scene where you can really, that, that can share their uh, healthy way of using some of the drugs that are in the field. We have a lot of bad models. We have accidents, um, but also the accidents are only narrated in a way uh, that that is like focused on the on the last point and on the accident. Mm -hmm. So, when we get a more rational way of talking about drugs, we also need positive models. Yes. So we we learn from positive uh, models, and, and as long as people say any form of drug use, excluding alcohol, of course, which definitely is a drug, yeah. Um, any form of drug is bad or feel ashamed for that. Yeah. It's very hard to talk reasonable stuff mm. about positive models. Yes, it's, um, there are quite a lot of similar similarities when it comes to um, users as when it comes to gay men when you look at the history back because the social construct always wants to demonize things there that they don't understand. So when people don't understand that they are people who like to uh, use substances to have a greater party to enhance whatever they're wanting to enhance, um, we should um, try to find ways to support them and be positive about it and give solutions. Like it's the same when people demonize gay people because they don't understand it. So it goes hand in hand. All the society always wants uh, people to fail in a way and not to succeed. So I think that a lot of power is, society puts a lot of power into uh, bringing um, certain people down and um, trying to change the narrative to a negative point of view instead of focusing on what good can come from a constructive dialogue. But what I also uh, think or find out is that um, a lot of potential for improvement it can also be found within the party scene. So quite often I notice um, that there are certain groups of people that kind of don't allow drug use to fail or to be not the nicest experience you've ever had. So I think this can be of an issue as well. Like if like your own peer group is expecting you to have the best time ever together with you, even though you don't feel like it at the moment. Yeah, so true. And um, so I think there are certain like social pressure scenes, or norms. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also really important like to watch out for each other and to reflect each other well even though you're that like fancy type of person who's always going to the fanciest type of clubs for example. Yeah, I think we've got sort of two interesting strands there. Um, we've been bringing in the idea that you don't hear much about unproblematic drug use. Um, or, you know, people who have been doing it and who are fine, like you were saying. There's a lot of sort of cautionary tales, don't do that, but not very much 
sort of I've been doing this for 10 years and this is how I did it um, I think it's interesting the event is called Safe Rave a How To as well as though it were sort of directly addressing that um, like a positive how to but you make a really good point as well Manuela about um, in the quest for positive drug stories we don't want people to feel pressured to not be able to say they're not having a good time like not to be not to feel like a party pooper if they want to say that things aren't going so great for them like if you allow each other to take a break you can probably improve uh, the future experiences you're having like this is what we always tell people like to um, find the right time for their party and drug experience and For example, with substances uh, like MDMA, it's no sense about taking it every week. You will need at least six weeks of a break to have a similar effect again because your body can just do it. It's just not possible. And so it's also like an emotional and um, yeah, a shared thing. This might be a contentious question and um, it may be troublesome to give really specific details for some people, but... Have you seen any kind of drug interventions or sort of prevention initiatives going on here or elsewhere that you think went really badly or were really misguided in some way? Like, um, Yes, I've been, um, during my work at a club once, I can mention the club, but it wasn't about blank, but I can mention it. <laughs> And um, uh, um, a young gay man, I think he uh, he uh, drank a lot of alcohol, which is always um, the worst when you do other uh, substances. And he took G, and um, he was like knocked out, and the door actually threw him out on the street. And I got in a huge fight with the door. I was like, I'm working here, and I can't work at a place where you treat people like this. And I packed my things, and I took my two volunteer colleagues, and I was like, it's over, it's done. Um, we're never coming back. <laughs> like it, w it was kind of a diva move, but you couldn't talk to the people in that moment. They were very focused on, he's ruining the party, and um, he just, they just threw them out. So it's definitely a bad intervention, because if they knew how to treat people in this state, um, it would have been a different um, experience for all of us. So for me, as a, as a social worker at the, at the club, for the, for the uh, young man who got kicked out on the street, And uh, as well for the club, because um, I think that it wasn't kind or caring. And I think that it can happen to a lot of people who are uninformed and they just want to have the best um, night of their lives or the best party ever, as you said earlier. And I think uh, the, there was the uh, support missing. So um, afterwards, uh, there was a happy ending. The, the, the guy is all right. <laughs> So the, the uh, man who got kicked out and actually I came back to the club like two months later and we sat down and talked and, um, and they did the safer clubbing afterwards so it was a win-win in the end but uh, it got very dark at first which I think um, wouldn't help it helped yeah but I think that um, we could have handled things better as a, as a community and that night so that was definitely an um, uh, example of uh, intervention gone wrong. Yeah, I've heard of that happening with G cases elsewhere. I think the club's sometimes afraid of getting in trouble. But um. So you're taking us to a very important, um, to a very important point. 
I mean, the training of people working in clubs is so important for setting the atmosphere in a club, for getting people aware of basic care and don't treat people as badly as you, as in your example. One, one reason why we can't really answer that question is because we don't have national programs uh, for clubs. We don't have one program. We have hundreds of little initiatives and that fragmented scene makes it impossible to for people themselves to do the pro uh, projects but also for outsiders to judge if they work or not mm -hmm. so um, that also comes from the from the larger discourse if we don't concentrate on on coming out with with good projects and roll them out it's very hard to tell what works i could tell something uh, more on your question mm -hmm. so um One of the reasons we are setting up these psychare services and festivals is also to fill this gap of the organizers that want to protect the image of their event and the medical staff who is in charge of all medical issues and is supposed to keep their um, capacities for real emergencies and also the security staff who's supposed to create a safe um, atmosphere and to prevent people from climbing up stages. This is why we take care of these people who, are, who don't belong to one of uh, the other um, expert teams, but they are still just having a bad time and might um, do silly things to themselves or others. And we still notice that it's really hard to like get all the teams involved for example in fe in in events we experience um often that uh, still many people are transferred to hospital for example because if the medical staff isn't uh, informed well enough they want to be on the safe side which is completely fair because they are supposed to protect the lives of the people um, and if we say okay we we know these kind of cases uh, this person is probably be gonna wake up in an hour and then he or she is going to be completely fine um, it's hard because we are not pro the professional uh, team to take responsibility for that kind of actions and so there's still a lot of negative examples we experience in every season um, and this is why we also need to just educate more like educate all all active people in a festival about what uh, is going on and how to protect your visitors including the medics yeah. very yeah. much this is a very much a thing in the uk scene as well um with people being over hospitalized because of lack of understanding of what they're on but you were going to say something yeah on a positive note and um, there are um a few parties in berlin where there's a lot of fucking going on and sex and everyone has sex with everyone and there are like awareness teams like there are a few people uh, f from the staff of the club who go around and who just like who are noticeable um part of an of an awareness team where you can come to if you felt like you've been if you have a bad party or if you have a bad trip or if you have been sexually harassed or anything because they want to um, create a safe environment i think that's a very progressive good solution for uh, parties where you know that there's a a lot of people who um, are, want to do um, substances, that there is a kind of an awareness a team 
at hand where they can go to or at the bar if they have a code word I think it was this year at a festival where you can say like where's Angela and then they know that you're um, in trouble somehow and they um, take care of you I think that's very great because it um, it Heinz, first of all, the sense of community and the sense of that we're all parting together. We're all part of each other's happiness mm -hmm. throughout the night or the weekend. And it en enables an, a, a safer environment. So I think that's a would be a step in the right direction for um, clubs and parties. I think so too. So, so training awareness teams, it also doesn't take a lot of experts. Of course, you have to set up a little bit of training, but then it takes down the, the, the knowledge to people who really do what they do. So uh, we can't have uh, like millions of social workers doing that stuff. It's, it's no, but work. it's peer work. Yeah, like it's peer work. There's yeah. one social worker, and you can enhance and you can um, provide information for the for the stuff. They become multiplicators, and they um, go on and tell what what they know. And so it yeah improves the awareness as a collective. I think. Yeah. I think uh, you've been talking about peers and. Uh, you, I think, Manuel, you also described your role as being um, sort of peer-based in a lot of what you do. I found in my own research that um, the peer aspect was really, really important because almost the more people suspect you of being a professional, um, even if it's a fluffy kind of professional, the less they will trust you on matters of drug use and kind of expressing that you are a peer can be a very, very powerful tool for encouraging people to trust you. And I don't know if you'd like to say more about kind of when you're doing work with drug users, do you present yourself as a peer or like how does it affect the way you present yourself? Well, it's pretty easy, my line of work, because mostly I deal with uh, gay men. So uh, they know uh, I'm gay and then they are talking all by their, themselves. And I think in the gay scene in Berlin, substances and um, sex and partying is so a tight knit, so it always comes to substances at one point when I interact with other uh, people. So it's always pure work. And um, when I talk to, when they share about their use or what they like to take or whatever, um, I can decide if I feel comfortable because you always have to feel comfortable on both sides because I can't, I would never assume that I am the person who knows best because every person is their own um, expert, thank you, their own expert in what they're doing. So I can only give suggestions or share my stories. Oh, two years ago, I've been high on this and that and like, how about drink some more water? Because I forgot to drink and it was a bad night, but there's nothing more I can do than to offer um, a year, an year. Yeah, but it's um, always better if people feel that you talk to them on the same level. And that's what I think uh, we're all always doing. Yeah. I'm not even sure if it's necessary to tell someone that you've had uh, similar experiences as well. But since you've had that experience, you might be more um, accessible for or more empathetic to that person which is undergoing a similar experience. So when we train our peers, we always leave this decision about what they want to share from their personal experience and their personal lives to 
strangers, um, of course. So everyone has to decide for themselves. It's about feeling comfortable, as you said. And so some find that it's helpful, like to get into this conversation and maybe exchange um, like situations uh, everyone has experienced or yeah, it can just be um, more helpful to understand the situation that a person is in. Or it can also uh, inspire your ideas about how to solve this situation. Maybe if you're having um, memories in your mind of what has helped you or a friend of yourself, it might also help you to improve the situation of uh, that guest you're dealing with. So in, in I don't know if you experience uh, it like I do, but in my experience, being a good listener and not talking all the time about your experience <laughs> is uh, is a major thing. So if you don't have a, a concept in your head that that everything that is that is surrounding drug use must lead to a bad end, you just listen to people and listen why they do it, how they do it, and then you could come in. But I I never talk to people actively about my own experience. I have talked about my first LSD experience on the radio and even on TV, but I never do it when I'm in a in a in a, in a situation where where somebody wants to share something because there's also that danger of that drug heroism that some people have. <laughs> I have this and that experience, and yours um, doesn't come close to mine or things like that. So I would be cautious with uh, actively sharing if people ask. Um, and you have something to share that might help, yeah. Well, what you're saying is also true. I wouldn't hope if I was in a, a difficult situation, someone told me like about the worst trip they've ever had. I think it's a thing that um, from watching various sitters do it while I was volunteering myself, like you're all saying, I think it has to be handled with care. Sometimes it just lets you intuit what to do. Um, sometimes just a few sentences about something that happened to you can make a massive difference but also I think there are all kinds of ways of conveying that one is a peer without necessarily saying it in so many words and that's kind of especially a thing in America because there is especially at Burning Man the awareness that anyone could be an undercover cop so you have sitters who are sort of obliquely telling their acid crisis stories um, very carefully to someone who maybe is insisting that he's just drunk even though he thinks he can manipulate chi or something like that. And there's this kind of saying things and not saying things that goes on. Yeah, you can usually get it across that you appear without necessarily saying it that bluntly. Yes. Or you could also um, cover it by saying like, I've known someone who's undergone this and that experience and that person uh, tried to do this and that. Uh, maybe you want to try as well. It could possibly help you like in that way. Yeah, I've seen that used. Um, sometimes it's not, peer doesn't have to mean I am a fellow drug user. It can just mean I'm a festival person. I've been around a lot of people who have had drug experiences. Like one of the best sitting experiences or um, cases that I witnessed um, the lady in question her teenage daughter had had a very similar bad trip that she'd seen her through 
some years ago. So she was able to use the experience from looking after her daughter to look after this young man. So appear as in bound up with the scene, not necessarily the other thing. I think there's also another aspect uh, when it comes to talking to to people about their drug use and maybe supporting them or listening to them. There is a, a section of drug users who have most problems with drug use and cause a lot of uh, problems for others. And these are often people who have a, a number of life issues going on or psychological disorders. And I think we need to be simply open for that. So um, I'm, when I talk to somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in why are you doing what you do? or what makes you happy and often it is not drug use that makes people happy sometimes uh, the the way they're using drugs makes them more unhappy although they're looking for that happiness in their their drug use so having an ear for uh, a basic life problem that is not solved is very important so um, because it might not be solved with uh, the, the use in a certain club atmosphere Absolutely, but <laughs> since I'm working in clubs, the, um, there are not a lot of people who come and say like, "This is my problem. Um, help me uh, find a solution." So it's more like I always try to have positive uh, talks with people and positive interactions because I'm trying to respect their party because uh, I'm working there. I'm sober. I'm working, but it's their party, and. Um, I always want people to allow themselves to have a good time. So um, I think that in other uh, contexts, that's definitely uh, good talking points. But like for my specific uh, line of work, I think that that wouldn't work. I think it very much depends on the type of intervention you're doing. Like what you're saying would be very relevant for a psychedelic sitter, for instance. Um, the kind of thing you're talking about in clubs is quite different. but. Um, Here's the thing, um, kind of if you could set up any kind of intervention for safer clubbing, safer nightlife, safer festivals, regardless of policy, like if there were no policy constraints or financial constraints, what do you think it would look like? I'm going to start and you can add if you like or change it. Thank you for starting. Um, so uh, it would be a party that had at least um, one chill out space, preferably outside with fresh air and if it's cold outside, an indoor version as well where people can relax with reduced uh, sound level and places to lie down or sit down, which is comfortable. And people would have access to free water Well, it's about the best case, right? So also access to some snacks like um, fruit or like salty snacks. And all staff would be educated about um, what is important to have a, uh, a good party. So to be aware of like people's boundaries uh, and not overstepping those and about drug use and what to take care of and would have an open eye for difficult situations of whatever kind. So this uh, refers to the staff at the bar and the wardrobe and the entrance and the security and everything. They might also have um, a short way to contact uh, medical uh, staff or maybe even police in case, well, sometimes people just show up and you they are causing 
stress and you don't want them inside the club and they wouldn't leave so you need support from the outside but in the best case you would have like cops that won't um, like try to get into the club or something but cooperate on a fair level yeah this is to start with and I also think um, Uh, I just yes. thought thought about the entry fee um, because and and about prices in general. Like, I would find it really romantic if it was possible to create parties uh, with a principle of solidarity about um, prices, uh, like referring to the entry fee and drinks and stuff. Because if people really want to go out with their friends, but uh, they are a student or whatever and don't have a lot of money and then they already have to pay like 15 euros in the entrance and then they have to buy a lemonade for four euros. It's just a whole lot of money. And so it would be interesting to try if it was possible that people that can afford to give more uh, would pay more so those who cannot uh, would have access to a drink as well. It would be the best way that we didn't need drug checking because there was a legal way of how to take drugs and know what you're actually uh, taking. But yeah, um, since this is quite far away, <laughs> we would <laughs> at least have a drug checking service in this party. Now we're getting into large-scale policy, but yeah. Um, It's like, let's build our the best club ever, Utopia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just uh, I would like just like to focus on one idea because I I, I met um, a very interesting guy on a conference in Prague who is programming virtual reality applications. So and um, in a club, um, in an ideal club that has everything that Manuela <laughs> has been talking about, I would also like to see um, uh, a few virtual reality applications where people who can test a little bit of what the others might be doing so it's it's incredibly realistic what people can experience in these um, virtual reality applications so some people might choose not to mix some drugs if they experience how the world looks like and feels like when they do it without so we can have that kind of training in a club too so, like VR simulations of a really bad yeah, drug why experience. Not? <laughs> Good and bad. Yeah, I think, I guess you'd be missing the sort of cognitive aspects, but at least you could get the um, what it does to your senses. Yeah. So, that's really interesting. How about you? Uh, everything has been said. It's like <laughs> a, a great start, so there's nothing more to add. Ah, yes, I missed. Free condoms, it. maybe. Yeah, I missed that <laughs> part, like yeah. information and. Yeah. Yeah. Material like condoms and lube and snorting tubes and stuff would be necessary as well. So just sort of give people all the information and materials they need and let them sort it out for themselves. This is. I mean, um, the awareness team would um, ha answer questions in the club, but there's it's always great. Um, to uh, take something with you when you get home and when you're like when you're bored after the party so you can read ah okay mm -hmm. so that how that works so it's always good to have like a good um, information material like flyers or stuff like that 
Something that's been really interesting for me about a lot of what you've said in this question and earlier on as well is um, a lot of the talk that happens about drug use in clubs focuses on the idea that clubbers are ignorant and they need our help to stop making terrible mistakes or you know if they heard about the risks they would stop using drugs but you've all focused on the club owners and organizers and festival organizers being the people who really need education and awareness and I find that quite refreshing like the idea that clubbers themselves are quite clued up and quite responsible, but... Well, there, there's nothing like the clubber. People are really different, and there are uh, really silly people out there. But silly people are people who uh, have not made a certain experience or need more guidance from their friends or something like that. So there is nothing like the clubber. I wouldn't talk about that. Uh, this way. I can only talk from my experience, um, my work experience, and I have really good experiences because I really do think that um, there are a lot of users out there in the Berlin um, scene that are very self-aware um, how to do the drugs, how to um, take care of themselves, and it's kind of a um, self-empowerment um, really a thing if you are able to um, to get the knowledge and to um, to act after the knowledge you have to have a, a better party and to talk about it openly so I really do think that um, there are a lot of well educated people out there who get often uh, mistreated by uh, society or uh, mislabeled as uh, abusers when they're actually users who are very self aware and um, yeah and um, good at what they're doing <laughs> Yeah, that's what struck me as well. It's not so much that there is a characteristic clubber who is always right, so much as that the focus not, no. is so often on them being irresponsible, whereas which causes those who are responsible to kind of get brushed under the carpet. Did we can I ask you something back? Because well, so you're talking to three Germans, and um, so do, do you see cultural differences in London or in Dublin, where you come from? Would any of these questions would uh, been have been answered differently in? these countries? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, I don't have much experience of the Dublin scene because I kind of left before having any fun, but... <laughs> well, that's why you left, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, in large part, yeah. But um, I think it seems as though uh, my impression from tonight is that the conversation is more open here. I mean, people do talk about stuff in London, but there's a lot more kind of furtiveness about it at more sort of, I don't know, being afraid what you say or not um, necessarily articulating all this stuff. Um, and probably more shame around things like sex clubs and queerness and stuff as well. So that's not quite so sort of refreshingly open. Well, I've heard that in London they do a lot of fucking on chem sex and stuff like that, so... Oh, they do. It's just all usually in private houses. Um, that's kind of a problem that's developing in London at the moment because gentrification has closed down a lot of clubs, um, especially gay clubs. And there was more of a structure in place in areas of London like Vauxhall, for instance, um, where there were a lot of kind of long-standing gay clubs. And the railway arches are all getting sort of sold and the rent's too expensive now and a lot of the places clubs used to be are gone. So you have kind of 
the gay scene moving to parties in private homes. But the problem with that is that often it's rather unscrupulous dealers who are running the parties with sort of not much oversight and bad drugs and those kind of more opportunities for harm there, I think. Um, it's not a scene I'm personally involved in, but I get the impression that there's this wider systemic thing where the gentrification of the city has led to these health impacts in really unexpected ways. Yeah, kind of less openness in general, and that's one aspect of it. I think there are probably lots of other things as well, but... And we're also living in the Berlin bubble a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, things look different in Hanover and uh, in the north and the south. So it's a, it's a world city that we're in. And mm -hmm. so we became a very open, uh, we, we developed a very open discourse. Uh, yeah, I'm getting that impression. It's good. So I would like uh, to come back to what you've said before um, about us talking a lot about the organizers and club owners. So I think it's important to mention that because those are the ones trying to create spaces where people are partying and having fun. So they have a certain responsibility to create safe spaces as well. But still... Um, we should not forget that everyone is responsible for themselves and also for their friends maybe as well. So what we often find is um, when we set up our spaces in festivals, for example, that um, some people who already know this kind of uh, psycho spaces in a certain uh, Uh, event for example really rely on that and so in the beginning of the festival they come and uh, get equipped with everything they need which is basically something we support but on the other hand um, we cannot be in every event ever and so we also try to be an inspiration and kind of a memory for people like uh, to remind them of getting prepared before the party and before the festival. And so people should actually uh, keep in mind that they should get some earplugs before they're going uh, to a party and not only rely on like uh, that they're going, that they will be able to receive it um, at the event. So I just uh, felt like this needs to be mentioned too, that people still have to keep in mind like, how to prepare themselves for the party and also to think of the time after the party. Like, do I want to get home uh, in a really messed up living room, for example? Or um, do I like to cook when I'm really wasted after the party? Or should I maybe prepare something in advance or prepare a number where I can um, order some food or something like that? Yeah, so... Um What I'm hearing is that the sort of harm reduction or psych care volunteers can't be everywhere, so they need to kind of pass on a set of skills that people can then use themselves. Sure. Yeah. But it's just like intertwined. It's like it takes, uh, it takes like, in this case, like a lot of people to tango, not only two, but a lot. It takes the owners and the users and the club staff. So it's like a, a combination of everything. So if everyone is more self-aware, then everyone is having a better time. Mm -hmm. It's quite easy, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still for pushing 
the even the club owners a little bit to to create those atmospheres because it will not come from simple appeal to their to their conscience and there's also another problem that we haven't been talking about in, in berlin a lot of the services that you guys give are given to the fancy clubs in in the, in the middle in the center of berlin But there are a lot of other dancing dancing clubs around where maybe more people than uh, in the center are going to that don't get any attention because they're not so fancy. People from other parts of the city uh, are going to. So there's also social difference in the attention that we provide. Definitely. But um, to answer for, for my project, it's uh, quite simple. There are some clubs that don't want prevention at their clubs, so there's nothing we can do. So we can reach uh, these people, unfortunately. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we tried, but if they don't want us to be there, then um, it's done. Like, yeah. That's where politics get in. Yes, it's unfortunately, yeah. but um, there still are maybe even these spaces that you mentioned. Maybe these are these spaces spaces who would need our help the most, but um, they're less um, active to talk about it more openly. So I don't know the reasons, but um, there are some places where we try to offer our, our work and um, prevention. It's always for free for the clubs, but if they don't want it, then um, they have their reasons. I was just uh, I just remembered uh, the story about uh, the colleague you were you were telling, and that reminds me of something that I saw um, on a on a platform. Do, do you know Psychonaut Wiki? That's one of the information platforms, and um, one of our colleagues is the guy who who creates Psychonaut Wiki, and he we were just writing a text about that, and I found that over the last year there was uh, there were many months were not like uh, those fancy drugs like DMT and psilocybin and new psychoactive substances that mimic those drugs were on top of the drugs that were searched for but for many months uh, those um, one almost one million people who are looking for information on the platform were looking for benzodiazepines We're looking for prescription drugs. We're looking for novel psychoactive substances that mimic those prescription drugs. So I think we need to, to, to be aware of the fact that a lot of people are treating themselves with those drugs, treating their depression. And that goes... That, that comes with every party so it's not only about having fun ecstasy and sex it's also about turning away from basic life issues it's both we need to keep that alive that that awareness alive i think sort of the combination of those things are touching on something really interesting um like you mentioned the fancy clubs that might have prevention and the uh, maybe less fancy ones that don't and also this kind of discussion of people self-medicating maybe because life is hard. Something I was conscious of when I was doing my own research was how a lot of these interventions end up rightly or wrongly getting to people who are better off in society. Like festivals are expensive, like it's very expensive to go to Burning Man for instance especially. And maybe and very it's, hot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's expensive to make sure you can stay cool at Burning Man. Just go naked. Yeah, <laughs> well, even so, you still need a shade structure, but um, <laughs> unless you want to be bright pink. But um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, there's a social stratification thing going on there. And I was wondering about the people in the less 
fancy clubs or who aren't going to festivals or who are trying to self-medicate because they're struggling in life in some way. And I wonder how we could extend these interventions to other sectors of society. What I always tell myself is that um, prevention and harm reduction never can reach everyone. And um, it's always important to, um, it's not about how many people you reach, it's about the people that you reach that they take it in and try to um, maybe uh, learn the tools that, that we try to give them. So you can never reach everyone. So it's quite a huge challenge that will always uh, fail. In my personal belief. Well, I guess if information was spread on a more uh, mainstream level, it could reach more people. Like if uh, uh, we would provide, not maybe not provide so much tobacco ads, but some <laughs> like a safer drug use uh, uh, promotion or something, it would reach more people. So there are ways, but they're restricted by laws and stuff. Um, I know that in other uh, places of Europe, for example, there are um, organizations which also um, do harm reduction work in free in the free party scene, for example, um, where I think they reach a lot more people that might be shorter in uh, money as well, for example. So, yeah. and of course, we we haven't mentioned what needs to be said always needs to be said that that drug education starts in school and starts in the media and we need funding for that um, and there are a number of projects that work on a european level but they are not rolled out so every school starts to educate again with every generation of teachers so it's not professionalized it's not very well structured um, but that, that's, that's because the, we were in a, in a phase, in a, in a period uh, in, in drug education that is still very much influenced by the prohibitionist paradigm, and we, we're just changing. Okay.